welcome back to Podcastles with me, Georgia, and my sister, Nikita. Hi, everyone. How are you today, Nikita? I'm, I'm doing okay, actually. Thanks, Georgia. Um, for context, everybody, we're recording this the day after Boris has told us we've got another national lockdown coming. But... We have podcasts to get through this period with. Also, should probably mention, you're on a new mic today, so it might sound a bit different. I am on a new mic. We're recording over over Zoom. Um, and so if it sounds a little bit ropey, bear with us. We'll, we'll work it Once out. we work it out. I, uh, <laughs> I may end up having to record under a blanket with this mic. but um, Make a little pillow fort. We are on to Oxfordshire now. We started last week with Oxford Castle, of course. But this week, on to a new feature castle. What are we talking about today, Nick? This week, we're going to be talking about Blenheim Palace. You're going to take us through the chronology, right? Shall we get straight into it? Yeah, we're going to get straight into it. And I think, first, first off, I think the most interesting thing to know about Blenheim is actually that it's the only palace in Britain which is a palace but not actually royal. So it's really? like, yeah, so it's actually the uh, the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough's seat. So, but it was actually I say that because it was built on the site of Woodstock Palace, which was royal. And uh, so, Woodstock Palace is actually where we're going to start. Okay. So, as it's the same land, same spot, might as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, Woodstock Palace is on the land where Blenheim is now, and it was actually Henry the First hunting lodge, which became a hunting lodge in eleven. Uh, 29. So before that, there are rumours that it could have been a, a court for King Alfred, but there's no substantial claims to that whatsoever. So that could be cool as well. And so then if you move you move forward to Henry II, sometime before 1176, he made it a palace. I say sometimes before 1176, but after obviously 1153, because before that was the anarchy. So this is Henry II, who we've spoken about in previous weeks. His, Matilda's son. Yeah, Matilda's son. So oh, I know where we are yeah. now. And so he, he made it a palace and it was a place he liked to go because he installed his mistress, Rosamond Clifford, somewhere mm. around that area. So he used to go to Woodstock to see her. And I thought this was quite a fun story because there's a really nice, um, it's not a nice myth. It's not a nice myth at all for Rosamond, poor Rosamond. But Rosamond was uh, supposed like she was famed for her beauty, so she was the fair Rosamond. And there's a there's a story about her demise, which is a myth, but maybe that's actually better for the for the ghosts and skeletons. So we'll we'll get onto that in a little bit. Other potential uh, links to ghosts and skeletons would be Henry II actually met with Thomas Beckett in Woodstock Palace, Ooh. allegedly. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Thomas Beckett is who became Saint Thomas, um, and he was a friend of Henry II and became Archbishop at which point he stopped doing everything that uh, Henry wanted because he was firstly for God and not for the king so he became so problematic that uh, not at Woodstock but um, someone said well not someone said Henry II said Will no one rid me of this? Uh... Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? And then um, some, some knights heard that and thought let's get some, some cred with uh, Henry, they went and assassinated in Canterbury Cathedral. But then he didn't. He claims he didn't actually mean it, and people just no. Well, we all say things we don't mean, but nothing that we say that we don't mean has quite so catastrophic res- impact. impact. So Thomas Beckett did have the top of his head cut off. But before his head was cut off, back when they were friends, maybe Henry and Thomas met at Blenheim Palace at, at Woodstock. Sorry, Blenheim wasn't created. It's Blen- uh, Woodstock Palace. Yeah, so supposedly there, which leads me nicely into the fact that in later years, in the 14th century, Chaucer would have been at 
Woodstock Palace for a bit because he was there with those kings. Remind me who Chaucer is. All right, Chaucer, Geoffrey Chaucer was a 14th century poet, English poet. He wrote the Canterbury Tales, which is the story of a bunch of pilgrims traveling from London to Canterbury. And each one of the pilgrims tells a story and it's... It's on the A-level syllabus, which is, to be honest, why I know. <laughs> um, it's the A-level English lit syllabus. So, uh, but it's a really good book. So he would have, he would have, he would have been at Woodstock. Mm. Yeah. Had some famous visitors. I mean, I think the most famous ones might be the monarchs. Mm, but that's true of most castles. <laughs> well, that is true. That is true. So speaking of monarchs, aptly, given that they're castles and palaces... Uh, Henry III actually added a chapel there and put extra reinforcements on the palace uh, in, in 1238 because someone tried to assassinate him there. Ah, that would give good cause to uh, make it a bit safer. Yeah, yeah, which would which would do, make you do the, the medieval adding of the burglar alarms. So <laughs> someone snuck into his bedroom to kill him. He wasn't there. This is all very ghosts and skeletons. Yeah, I know. Uh, I should probably leave this bit for later, but I'm going to do it now anyway, so that we keep listeners uh-huh. listening. Uh, yeah, he was actually in his wife's bedroom. Uh, oi, oi. <laughs> he was saved, saved by his wife, and then thought, hmm, better, better build some walls. And this is why it's really helpful to not sleep in the same room as your spouse. <laughs> it's just sensible just in case someone tries to come and murder you because then it's happy life stay alive all good yeah so so how does it what burger alarms does he put on the castle in 14th century terms so i couldn't find that out but he they reinforce it so then we're going to skip forward uh, a reasonable length of time to henry the seventh so we've skipped out Fourth, fifth, and sixth. Yes, we have. How many years have we skipped forwards? So Henry the Seventh came to power in fourteen eighty-five, and sometime during his reign, I'm afraid I don't have a date for that. He did a bit of a rebuild on the palace, and then Henry the Eighth would spend some time there. But it's really under Mary the First reign that we're really interested in Woodstock Palace. Henry the Seventh's granddaughter, Henry the Eighth's daughter by Catherine of Aragon, so it's his first child, and she was queen from fifteen fifty-three to fifteen fifty-eight. She was the woman who managed to stop Jane from taking the throne, the Lady Jane Grey, when Edward died. And that was something we talked about in previous episodes. Yeah, Mary, the first half-brother, Edward, tried to cut her out of the succession, but Mary wasn't having any of it. But she's Catholic, and so she wages a bit of a, a war against Protestants. There's a reason we call her Bloody Mary. Bit. Mm-hmm. She burnt a lot of Protestants. So what does that mean for Woodstock Palace? Well, Woodstock is actually where Mary locked Elizabeth up for a little bit. Really? Yeah, so... She was in the tower, I thought. Oh, she was taken to the tower from a park castle she was already locked up at. No, 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 no. So after Wyatt's rebellion... So uh, Elizabeth was... She was caught up in a, in a rebellion. She wasn't actually involved. She didn't know anything. But Wyatt's Rebellion in 1554 was against Mary I and the plan was to overthrow Mary and put her sister Elizabeth on the throne, Princess Elizabeth, who becomes Elizabeth I. And even though there's no obvious reason to believe that Elizabeth would have been involved, obviously Mary's not really having any of this. So she initially locks up Elizabeth 
in the Tower of London, which I can imagine was terrifying given that Elizabeth's mother had died in in the Tower of London, her her mother being Mm. Anne Boleyn. And so she was kept there for a bit and then she was actually moved to Woodstock under, under um, under a lot of household watch. And apparently she didn't do very well there. I wonder why. So she was there for a bit. There are stories about some of her household refusing to take mass and being summarily removed from her from her palace entourage from her entourage so yeah that's also probably something i should have put in ghosts and skeletons but spoiler alert elizabeth gets out and then she ends Ooh. up and then she ends up queen not because they overthrow mary though mary just dies no mary just dies um so she's there nearly a year okay until she gets let out and actually it's philip of spain mary's husband who is the um, prince consort, he actually advocates for her coming out of lockdown. I'm coming out. <laughs> she, she, she comes out of lockdown, and I think we can all appreciate how nice that would be. Uh, <laughs> and so we... Uh, so, yeah, so actually Philip felt like uh, Elizabeth owed him a lot, I think, for that afterwards. But the choice was basically between... Mary Queen of Scots or Elizabeth as the successor because by this point Mary's still not had any kids it doesn't look like she's going to and while Mary Queen of Scots is Catholic she's massively allied with France so she uh, yeah he would rather Elizabeth was on the throne he didn't the you know he didn't he, he didn't want the French involvement because if France and England and like England are allied it causes a massive problem for Spain so then we're also going to jump forward again quite a lot to the Civil War, which is in uh, the 1640s. And it's a royalist base, as you can imagine, given that Oxford was a royalist stronghold. And it, it actually fell in 14, uh, 1646 siege and then sort of goes into a bit of disrepair and isn't really, really bothered with for a while. So the parliamentarians don't really do anything with it once they take over? No, just, just destroy just it. Disrepair. Yeah, it's just not a thing anymore. Is that slighting again or is that just... No, no one mes- mention of slighting, but if anybody knows whether it was slighted, uh, it would be good to hear from them. So that ends uh, Woodstock. Oh, so is this then the rise of Blenheim Palace? It is the rise of Blenheim Palace. You know, so you- I'm going to give you some background because this is... Uh, it's not complicated, but there's a lot of moving parts, especially... Okay given that I don't really think we've looked at this kind of history before yet, because this is the first palace we've done, really. Whereas all the others are castles or kind of called palaces, but they're tall intents and purposes used for the same thing as castles, right? Yeah. So So Woodstock goes into disrepair, and then I suppose people come and decide to build a new new palace on on the ground so it's not not really in that way it's not like someone goes i shall purchase you it's so the duke of it's the the seat of the duke and duchess of marlborough mm-hmm. and so uh the first blenheim palace is built in at the start of the 18th century as a result of the battle of blenheim okay so what's that um the battle of blenheim was a part of the spanish war of succession which was a war for um for the spanish succession really yeah really <laughs> so um the key players in that are sort of on uh, on the english side it's england scotland austria dutch republic prussia a couple of other places and then on the other side it's the french louis the 14th who built versailles um and bavaria and so it was this war there was there wasn't a successor to the spanish throne and obviously there's conflicting interests that's massively uh, shortening what what the uh, spanish wars of succession was 
but you get the point. So the Battle of Blenheim was in August of 1704, and it was a massive victory for the English side. And so much so that the Duke of Marlborough, who was heading up the battle for the English at Blenheim, was deemed a national hero and became this massive figure, widely popular. And so then, uh, not long after that, Queen Anne, because this is the reign of Queen Anne, she gifts the Palace of Woodstock and its lands to the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough for the purpose of the... As a thank you. And then also says that she and the Parliament, which is basically the people's taxes, uh, would pay for its rebuild as a thank you. So it's it's not really... It's quite a nice present. Yeah, but that means it's sort of... You have to know that because it couches... Blenheim, Blenheim isn't just a palace. Blenheim is a monument to... English or British greatness right? is kind of how you could see that. So the land for Blenheim Palace, uh, 15,000 acres. And it's worth... And, yeah, and so it's worth roughly uh, £6,000 a year. Like they'll get £6,000 a year from the land and stuff, which obviously uh, was a lot more then than it is now. The building actually starts in 1705. Like a lot of uh, house building projects, uh, not that I have any experience in those. Uh, the building went slightly not to the original plan. Of How long did it take them? Well, it took them 20 years. Ah. So it took them from 1705 to 1724-25-ish. Uh, there's a lot of complications. And the Duke of Marlborough, so the guy for whom Blenheim was built, actually died in 1722. <laughs> so didn't actually see the finished work. So before we get to the reasons that the build was so pro- problematic... And, and sort of how they designed it and what they went for in terms of design. Uh, I think this is quite a good way to talk about why there are problems and the basis for problems for people like the Duke of Marlborough. Just because I think it, it sort of sums up why that basically the finances were a problem the whole way through. And this is kind of why, uh, one of the reasons at least. So um, during, during the 18th century in Britain, uh, well, actually, more than just this, this century, but we're going to just take it as this century for the... Otherwise, it's it's huge and my brain will explode. Uh, there were two political parties. So you've got the Whigs and you've got the Tories. And so the Tories are generally the more uh, pro-monarchy party. And then the Whigs, on the other side, are more opposed to the monarchy. They they don't like them having the complete power and they, they wanted parliamentary power instead. So for context in terms of this period, because we're going to be looking mainly at Anne's reign. So the Whigs were the main power in Parliament from uh, 1715 all the way up until George III. George III comes to power in 1760. And that's when they sort of stop being so much power. But as a fun fact, although they're complete rivals throughout this period, they merged in 1912 to become the Conservative Party that the UK has today. What what you do need to know out of that is that Anne, Queen Anne, is actually more of a Tory and she favours the Tories and Marlborough is actually a Tory. But later, I think around the time after, just after Blenheim, he becomes part of the more, there's a, there's a group of moderate Whigs and Tories who have like a bit of a coalition. He becomes part of that. And so he knows, Marlborough knew that to be in the position he wanted to be in in England, he needed to win wars but also that because the parliament at the time were so Marlborough knew that he needed to win a war and win the battles that were going on to keep his position 
uh, of like of grandeur safe in in England. And because the Parliament at the time are pro the war, it means that they're very happy to unlock the funds that will go towards Blenheim. So he needs to be popular in order to get what he needs and therefore needs to fight battles because that's what's popular back then. Yeah, because although Parliament's in favour of it and unlocking these funds, there are still people who obviously very much don't like Marlborough. He has some huge political enemies who could take it away, which is actually when some of our ghosts and skeletons could come in here, Georgia. Okay. So I'll talk about them a little bit later, but it involves the influence that Marlborough's wife has over Queen Anne. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later, but basically she was declining in influence during this period. Who, Anne or Marlborough? Uh, Marlborough's wife. So Marlborough's wife is a really influential person, but is declining in importance in this period. Yeah, she and the Queen are having a bit of a falling out. Uh And so obviously that also doesn't help with the funding of the palace. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, but for now, that's all sort of the background and the, the contemporary context of the problems that are going to be having, you're going to have with building Blenheim. So the architect that they, they commission or Anne commissions called John Vanbra, the architect and playwright to build the... Right. Yeah. I didn't realise you could be that diverse in jobs. That is an interesting combination I'm not, of skills. I'm not entirely sure what qualifies one for the other but i'm not i'm not sure someone who maybe he constructs plays like he constructs buildings what what with pen and paper it's i mean it's not he's just skilled with a pen maybe um he was commissioned to design and build uh blenheim palace and he'd actually so it's not just like Anne had gone oh i like your play do you fancy building a palace he was actually not a qualified architect. architect. He draws buildings as well as he draws a scene. Yeah, but you do know you don't draw a scene, you write a scene. <sighs> Fine. Um, <laughs> Ruining it for me. And you know what? There's no parallels to make jokes with here, which is almost a joke in itself. So he, he and his sidekick uh, go a bit overboard in their designs. So it's going to be huge and impressive and grandeur and it's going to have all of this stuff. And uh, I thought you said there were finance problems. Well, yeah, but at this point, someone else is paying for it, aren't they? So yeah. who cares? Yes. <laughs> you know this English. Free stuff? Okay, I will take all the buffet in my bag. <laughs> so it goes a bit overboard. Obviously, Marlborough's a national hero, but I don't... The, from the sources that I was reading, it doesn't look like Vanborough really understood how to achieve what he wanted to achieve with the building and i think possibly if you'd have hired someone who was a trained architect that might have been a bit better but he had in fairness built other castles and things so the treasury basically couldn't keep up with the payment right it ended up being that the duke and duchess funded quite a lot of the build or not a lot of it, but like a decent amount of the build. And Marlborough also goes back off to war. So after going, I want this massive grandiose house that his wife, Sarah, is a bit like, do we need it? Do we really want that? He then leaves her in charge of the build. So she clashes massively with John Vanbra. And they really don't like each other. It went massively over budget, caused a massive financial strain. It should also be noted that 
for part of what must have been a fantastic 18th century home builds from hell TV show. <laughs> the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough go into exile. Right. Just to add another complication. Come on then. Why are they exiled? No, they self-exile. What? Okay, I'm going to self-exile myself to Barbados tomorrow. Like, what does that mean? You can't. It's not on the travel corridor. Yeah, they, they consciously uncoupled from England. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they, they exiled themselves, really, because... That's just called moving. Yeah. It's not exiling. You can't exile yourself. I made it. I'm taking a break from my massive castle. So Queen Anne had formed a Tory government, and uh, it was Marlborough's arch nemesis at the lead, at the helm of it. So to cut a long story very short, 20 years to build this palace. Right. £300,000, which, which the Parliament did not pay for in entirety. So it actually caused a lot of financial troubles what? for the Marlboroughs. So that wasn't good. For context, because 300000 wouldn't buy you a flat in London these days. Six, so the £6,000 in 1705... Uh, would now be £1,425,237.67. So that's according, that's how much money they were receiving every year. That they would receive every year, yeah. So then how much would £300,000 be that they spent on it? So £300,000 in 1725 was £62,278,941 and one pence. <laughs> that's how much they've spent and the parliament yeah. didn't cover the whole thing or much of it until oh, the so end I can understand why the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough would maybe self-exile self <laughs> and this is the why would you walk away from such an expensive project you've got so far you might as well just go the whole it way did, it got completed but the Duchess of Marlborough did the whole thing she slogged through it despite despising John Vanbrugh, the architect, and being like, this is wrong. When they self-exile, what do they? What happens to the palace? Do they sell it? it keeps going. They're still, they're still building it. No, no, it's the family seat of the Duke of Marlborough, the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough still. What is the point? I'm so confused. So actually, there's a really good line from one of the historians that I was reading, and I thought this was a, a good way of summing it up. He just terms it wasteful. And his he's kind of using it as a I'll link to this in the in the in the blog post, but he link he, he sort of calls it I think the way he describes it is a bit of a, a metaphor for the waste of time that was sort of going on at this point. Like there was just so much waste. If you've from we'll talk about the ghosts and skeletons later and where more of this comes in, but at this point, there's an awful lot of this whole period is portrayed quite as quite a lot of gluttony and excess. And I think there is no better summary of that than Blenheim Palace. But it is beautiful. I don't know if any of you have been. I'm now going to tell you about the building of it because I think it's really interesting. It's actually not the only Baroque building in England, but it is, I think, the only Baroque palace. There's a Baroque castle, but no Baroque palace. And Baroque is a style that's very key to this century and this period as a design format and architecture is very brief in England. We don't use it as much. If you want to think Baroque buildings, I think the best example I can think of is probably the Palace of Versailles. It's this whole, the whole structure of sort of the outside is very much that. And Versailles is quite a big influence. They don't want it to be mimicry. 
but they want some kind of that it's that kind of influence of build and it was this whole power balance relationship because obviously they're at war with Louis the 14th who built Versailles so grandeur and magnificence and that display of power so in terms of some of the architecture the the palace chapel has a different design to what we would uh, see in a normal chapel so the altar is actually at the west side because that that means that the duke of marlborough's tomb could be placed in the most uh, important part of the church the most prominent part so that's like the main feature of the chapel is the the tomb which I thought was, you know, that's something that's very different to normal. Mm. And I think it says quite a lot about where the focus was shifting to and what was important at that time. Yeah. Just basically displaying your power through ridiculous displays of wealth. Yeah. I think that's quite interesting that they, they've put the altar in a different place so that the main feature is is the person. After Marlborough dies, Georgia, they... Um, Which is before the palace has been oh, finished. Yeah. So it's 1722. <laughs> They actually, in Parliament, they pass a special act so that his eldest daughter can inherit the dukedoms. Is that because they don't have any sons? Or? So he had, they had sons, but they died. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they only, it was, rather than it passing to like a nephew or something, it still manages to pass to the daughter because they get an act. Yeah. And so after, and after her death, it goes to her nephew, who is the son of her sister. So this is this is okay. Just trying to follow that line in my yeah, head. So this is seventeen thirty three, and then there's not a lot for me to say until we get to the difficult. So they had some financial difficulties in the nineteenth century, and then it gets to the point where the ninth Earl of Marlborough in eighteen ninety two he he inherits the dukedom, and the position is is pretty close to bankruptcy. Apparently, this is what I've read. So he marries. A Vanderbilt. And the Vanderbilt family are a really big family in the United States. They're a, I think they're a train, a railway company family. And yeah, so her dowry is something like, it's it's upwards of $75 million in today's money, not in not in that day's money. Um, and um, there's there's some annual income. I think, I think the money comes to them in, at least the, the dowry comes in like stocks and shares. Apparently, the Vanderbilt is a Consuelo Vanderbilt. And she was seen as like one of the most beautiful people of the era. There are photographs of her, but I feel very sorry for her because it seems like she was massively bullied into the marriage from what I've read. What did that family get out of that if they were marrying into a family that was basically bankrupt? Is it just that they get an English title out of it? Yeah, I think so. You become ennobled, they get money is kind of the way it went. The way it's told that, that sort of she felt like she had to do it. A domineering mother is what, it, what I've read. The, um, they updated Blenheim Palace in the style of Versailles. So whereas before it's definitely Baroque, there are definitely overtones of that style. This is now like a, a bit of a copy. It's a very unhappy relationship from, from what I've read. Doesn't seem like it was particularly enjoyed. And she leaves him in 1906 and the divorce is finalised in 1921. It's at this point I feel I ought to tell you I don't know if I've mentioned this, that the Marlborough family, Marlborough is obviously not their last name. You get the Dukes of Marlborough, like you get the Dukes and Duchesses of, of Sussex and, York and, and Warwick and yeah, they are actually the Churchill family. Oh, mic drop. That's an important name. Yes. So it's the, the Spencer Churchill. The Winston Churchill was actually born there. Okay. Yeah. So he comes from the, the sort of Marlborough family. He's not, his father was not the first son. 
I think he was the third. So the lordship so, didn't pass through that line. The lordship doesn't pass down through that line, um, which is why he and his father, I think, sat in the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously Winston Churchill, very famous political figure in British history. We will uh, fight them on the beaches. Yeah, took us through the Second World War. And actually, during World War Two, Blenheim hosted evacuees and it from 1940, MI5 made their base there. Oh, really? Didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah, neither did I. I thought it was really cool. So they were there until the end of the war. And fast forward up to today, it's still the homes of the, the Dukes and Duchesses of Marlborough. So the family is still there. So it stayed in that family yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Okay, does that take us up to date with the chronology then? Yeah, it does. So now, Georgia, mm-hmm. do you want some ghosts and skeletons? Of course I want some ghosts and skeletons. Who doesn't? Wonderful. So I am going to first start with Woodstock Palace again. Okay. We hinted at a couple. So I think the main ones to talk about are the fair Rosamond, the mistress oh, yes. of Henry. Of Henry II. So this is this is during this is sort of between eleven fifty three and eleven seventy six. Not the entire period, but sort of around that time. So legend has it that to hide his affair with Rosamond, Henry built a maze in the grounds of Woodstock Palace and he would conduct all of his affairs with her in the centre of the maze and it was like a really windy, wibbly maze so it was really hard to find the middle and it was very, very hush-hush and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine gets through the maze Uh-oh I imagine the f- the phrase hell hath no fury probably comes in quite well to this story <laughs> but basically she goes she, she, you know She finds out her way through the maze to find Fair Rosamond and basically she arrives with two gifts. She can says she can have one of these. One of them's a dagger, the other one's a bowl of poison. Uh oh. And she's like, How would you like to how would you like to die? So do you mean Rosamond like lives in the middle of this maze? No, she actually lives in Oxford. You can apparently, oh, uh, sorry, not Oxford, but like in the Woodstock area. And you can I think you can still go and see where she would have been, whereas the Woodstock Palace is Yeah, whereas obviously Woodstock Palace has been destroyed. They have their liaisons in this maze, according to legend. I'd like to point out these legends don't come around until like the 1400s. Eleanor kills her, according to the legends? Yes, so basically she opts for poison and dies. So Rosamond dies. Okay. And that's kind of the story there. The other main bit of ghosts and skeletons then at this palace is at Blenheim, and it's to do with the Duchess of Marlborough, the original one, whose name was Sarah Churchill. Um, during the reign of Queen Anne, Sarah mm-hmm. Church is the one that clashed with John Vanbrugh, the architect, and she was the favourite of Queen Anne for a long time. I don't know if you did you see the movie The Favourite, Georgia? I did. I'm not sure what I thought about it. Really, it was very odd. <laughs> oh, I really liked it. I thought it was a great film. Well, I wasn't saying I'm not like I didn't like it. It's um... if you've not seen it, The Favourite is a great film by Yorgos Lanthimos, which you should definitely watch, and it stars Queen Anne. Coleman and Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone and it's about a love triangle between Sarah Churchill the Duchess of Marlborough and a woman called Abigail Masham basically although the Duchess was Anne's favourite for a very long time Abigail Masham comes in and she starts to gain favour and eventually overtakes Sarah Churchill the Duchess of Marlborough and that causes the decline of the Duchess of Marlborough's influence over the Queen. But I've put it in the Ghost and Skeleton section, Georgia, precisely because of the film. There's always a lot of talk around women in power anyway during this time. 
And given the power that all these women held, there's a lot of rumours that go around and court gossip that they're all lovers. And that's what the film was based on. Yes. The film certainly, the film is the story of if that were true. So it's based on a true story sort of thing. The characters are real, but we don't know whether, what the nature of their relationship was. No, but they are the rumours that go around. There are there are a lot of people suggesting that that's the stories that's happening. Definitely worth being in the ghosts and skeletons. Yeah, and in fact, Sarah Churchill writes to the Queen at one point saying that these are the rumours that are going around about you and Abigail. So there's a lot of jealousy. There's a lot of like, other things that are going on there that are su- suggested. Yeah. But I also think it's quite an interesting look at how women mm. are playing that court battle game for themselves that we looked at previously, that men were playing and using the women as pawns. So I think you can see some more agency of the women, which I think is quite interesting. And they're very, they're three very powerful, autonomous characters. And that's mm-hmm. how it's portrayed in the movie. And I think that's really great. Who, who really knows? Because there's a lot of different ways to besmirch the names of people in power, particularly with women. There are some key ways that people will try to impugn their honour in order to discredit them. And their sexuality was always going to be one of them. So it would be a really interesting theme topic. It would be because there's a lot of kings and queens who are given these titles of having lovers with their favourites. So maybe maybe we should do that one. Mm. Anyway, and with that, that ends my ghosts and skeletons section, Georgia. What did you think of those? Very good. I particularly like, I mean, the whole chronology had a lot of ghosts and skeletons in as well. I feel like a lot of the story could have just been entirely in the ghosts and skeletons. With Well, so I thought about that, but then I thought, I don't know how I'm going to explain the chronology without putting these things in. So there's a lot more There's a lot more of those sort of stories than sounds like it in just that two. They're the two biggest ones, I think, from one from Woodstock, one from Blenheim. What do you think of it in comparison with Oxford? So if we're getting into influence, it's an interesting point because I think both Oxford and Blenheim have been important in different ways from like Kenilworth and Warwick from last month. And I still wouldn't say they play the same level. But then if you've got the Churchills coming out of it, that's massive. Marvel was clearly a very important name, particularly in Anne's period. Well, is the fact that the, the Palace of Blenheim is literally built as a monument to English greatness. Um, and also it's it's so symbolic of the problems that were going on between the political parties and the power that... It's still the power that the individual nobles had. Marlborough seems to be using battles as a way to cling on to power, while his wife is the one who has the direct influence with the Queen, the Queen Regnant. Mm, yeah, I don't... Oh. I really don't know what to say about this one. This is the thing that we were always going to come across. There was We did discuss at one point trying to sort of actually put the castles in a ranking order, but it was just never going to work because there are so many different ways you can be influential and important as nobles and castle owners, but also the castles themselves. This one wasn't as strategically important. It's a symbol of the importance. Yes, metaphorically important yeah symbolically important then you've got the importance of the fact that they may not have been royalty there but they were the Churchills which give us not only a lot of dukes and duchesses throughout the years but it's all that would have had a lot of influence with the king and queen particularly under Anne but also it gives us Winston Churchill which is obviously a massive part of our history and so it's one of those things that again you can't really compare it to the castle, the other castles that we've looked at so far. I think it was fair last week to say mm, Oxford, not as important as 
Kenilworth or Warwick maybe from the sense of people that have been there. Yes, it was very important under Matilda. Yes, it was very important in the Civil War. But we see a longer period of importance for Warwick and Kenilworth. But Blenheim is important in a completely different period, in a completely different way. So I just don't think we can even really compare I think them. it's a good start to the palaces, though. It's a good a good base marker. Absolutely. Going with a, going Definitely. With if you can ever visit Blenheim again, if we can ever leave our houses again, Georgia... Blenheim's definitely a good one to visit. It's also the, the village of the sort of the surrounding area of Woodstock is beautiful. It's in the middle of the Cotswolds um, and it's just stunning. In the meantime, whilst we can't go and visit places, you can What's just imagine being there through mine and Nick's incredible descriptions of these castles. <laughs> so when things are open and available, how can people visit? In, in more happy times, Georgia, you can go every day between 10 and 4.30. I highly recommend it. Normally they would do beautiful Christmas things, and but obviously not at the moment. The park is actually open from 9.30 till 6, so you can just go and wander about, and it's, it is stunning. So that just about wraps us up for this episode. Next episode, we'll be rounding up the smaller castles of Oxfordshire, doing our little selection box of Oxfordshire as we've started calling them so we look forward to that and we will see you next time bye bye